five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. Welcome to the third and last episode in this year's summer series, where we feature three compelling talks from other creators. In this week's episode, we hear from Stephanie Thomas, who will speak on Direct Fusion Drive for Rapid Deep Space Propulsion. Ms. Thomas is Vice President of Princeton Satellite Systems. This talk was featured on the May 29th Future in Space Operations Weekly Teleconference. The slides are available with the podcast on our website with the URL link in the show description. Listen in. Stephanie, the floor is yours. Oh, well, thanks so much, and thanks for inviting me to give this talk today. Uh, We've been working on Direct Fusion Drive for a good few years now, and uh, it's really exciting to be telling everyone about the work that we've been doing. Uh, so, on my cover slide, I have an artist conception of the engine and a depiction of a spacecraft around Pluto um, using two of the engines. And on slide number two, I have a list of our team members. So, this is a collaboration between us, Princeton Satellite Systems, and the Princeton Plasma Physics Lab, which is also located right here in New Jersey, uh, just five minutes from our office. And my colleagues at PSS are Mike Paluszek, who's the president of PSS. I am the vice president. And uh, Charles Swanson is a physicist who just graduated from PPPL and uh, has been working on the machine. And the inventor of the underlying technology we're going to be talking about is Dr. Sam Cohen uh, at the Princeton Plasma Physics Lab. All right, so slide number three. So we have a dual-use technology that we're talking about today. Uh, this fusion reactor that can also act as a rocket. So this slide depicts the differences. So on the left, we have the PFRC, or the Princeton Field Reverse Configuration uh, Schematic of the reactor. Uh, so it's a compact toroid, the plasma in the center. There are no magnets going through the center of the plasma. It's a self-assembling uh, set of closed field lines, and that's where fusion would happen in the center of the engine. There's radio frequency heating, so there are antenna external to the plasma. Um, they're marked with an arrow. And then the entire FRC uh, plasma toroid is then within a magnetic mirror, so there are larger magnets on the outsides of the machine. And there's a flow, a cool flow, that's depicted by the arrows going around the fusion region that remove the fusion exhaust. So on the right-hand side, We have the same core, but now the collection box is gone, and we just have an open plume. And in that configuration, we call it direct fusion drive. So now we have an open end, and our flow rate going into that cool layer around the plasma can be adjusted within some region to produce a range of thrust and specific impulse. So the fusion products uh, end up exchanging their energy with that scrape-off layer as the flow goes across the fusion region. So we call that thrust augmentation. That's how we slow down uh, the speed from the fusion product speed, which would be too high to produce meaningful thrust and get a moderate thrust engine. So the key uh, takeaway is that the DFP will produce power and propulsion in one device. So while it's uh, having that plume and producing thrust, there is still uh, substantial power being generated from the heat coming off the fusion at the same time. So it can do both. It can be configured 100% for power with a closed end, as depicted on the left, or used as a rocket, as depicted on the right. All right, so next slide, slide number four, gives the broader picture of why would we want to build a small, clean fusion reactor. So our space applications are in the middle of the slide. Uh, For example, NASA and defense uses in space. So we have our deep space robotic missions, which is sort of our our rapid deep space propulsion that we're talking about today, but also as a power plant for lunar and Mars settlements, asteroid or comet intervention, and general space platform power. There are a number of civilian applications as well. Uh, This is a small power plant. Uh, I didn't read the title on the slide just underneath, which is the 1 to 10 megawatt power regime. 
So that's a minivan-sized reactor, and that's a small, very small fusion reactor. It's in the micro-reactor class if you're looking at other fission or fusion reactors. So now you're looking at distributed remote power, such as for a village or a mining operation in Alaska or in Canada, mobile or emergency power, and in general, modular power. And then there are several uh, defensive applications as well, including potentially fusion-powered drone aircraft. So that's a little taste that space is, uh, for our purposes, perhaps the most exciting application, but we're uh, viewing it as a dual-use technology with a lot of civilian and military applications as well. And when you see our funding profile, you'll see that reflected a little bit. So slide five. So these are the three buzzwords that I'll be repeating uh, in the next few set of slides, that the PFRC or the DFD is simple, small, and clean. So the FRC, as I mentioned earlier, that's a field reverse configuration. So, you know, if you Google that, um, lots of great descriptions, lots of great pictures about what an FRC is as differentiated from a topomac or a large toroidal plasma with magnets through the center or a spheromac. It's enabled in our case by a new variant on a magnetic plasma heating method. It would be steady state operation. So once you turn it on, it would stay on for the duration of the mission but it has a simple linear array of magnets. You can see again a version of that same simple diagram where we just have a series of magnets in a row um, with the larger magnets on the ends. So we can just, it's easy to assemble and during development, it's easy to take apart for diagnostic purposes. The very small size uh, makes it great for spacecraft and putting on a launch vehicle, but it's also related to enabling it to be very clean and to have very low radioactivity. Uh, that's related to exhausting the more radioactive particles. And the fact that it's linear is what makes it easy for us to direct flow for a rocket engine mode. Uh, and the picture that you see uh, on the right is the existing experiment at PPPL. We call it PFRC2. There was also a 1, uh, A, B, C, and D. So that's the second generation of our machine. And you can see the purple glowing plasma of a pulse. And then we have an orange, that figure eight, uh, that's capped on tape wrapped around the antenna. So those are the radio frequency antenna. Uh, there are four of them surrounding the machine, and that's what produces the heating. Excuse me, Stephanie? Yes. Yeah, Stephanie, I just have a quick question. Um, maybe you're going to sure. come to this later, but I'm just curious, what is what kind of power draw is your, is your heater? That is, um, you know, for... For, for experimental devices like ITER, Tokamak kind of stuff, um, they, they, they generate fusion power, but they've got to put in more power in order to heat the stuff up. And so I'm just wondering if you're getting out one to 10 megawatts, what, what are you putting in? Well, okay. We don't have a fusion reactor yet. So oh, we're not okay. producing fusion at this time. Uh, this experiment, and I have a development plan further on, which really lays out the um, the plan of going to larger machines. Uh, so that's the projection. Um, but then I also have a power diagram later that shows this is a driven machine. So approximately 10% of the electric power that you're generating would be going back into the machine to drive it. So it's not self-heating or self-sustained in any way. Uh, the plasma is only heated by the energy we're putting in, which, as I said, we're budgeting about 10% of the total electric power to go back into it. Okay, that's fine. I, I guess in the in the terminology of tokamaks, you're saying that what you envision is a Q of about 10. Uh, or higher, yes. Okay, or higher. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, Stephanie, Steve Brody, ISU. Just a quick one. When you say um, small, I haven't seen anything that um you know with where there was something in the picture to give me a sense for the scale uh can you say exactly you know for uh, spacecraft uh what what you're thinking about small uh yeah i have uh, well i have a picture of the existing experiment with a ruler on it later the current plasma is uh 16 centimeters in diameter and a reactor plasma would not be that much larger. It would be maybe 50 centimeters in diameter. So that's the plasma. So, and then it's long. So the whole plasma is like a surfboard. So the reactor built around it would be about the size of a minivan or small truck. So that's the whole reactor. So it would fit on a launch vehicle in t completely. So you wouldn't need to assemble it in space. That's for okay. the 10 megawatt version? 
That's um, so it doesn't get any bigger in radius when it goes from one to ten megawatts. It just gets longer, which is why then there's a limit to how long you can make it compared to the radius. So I'll get. I think I'll address that a little more in in additional slides. Um, so let me chug along a little bit more, and then I will pause in a few more slides and take any more questions if that's okay. All right. So slide number six um, just gives an overview of what's gotten us to this point um, today. So the original uh, apparatus was a magnetic nozzle experiment funded by the DOE um, starting in 1998. And around 2000-2002, uh, Sam Cohen had the idea for the new heating method, and it, that uh, those magnets were reconfigured to PFRC1. So that's been supported by the Department of Energy Fusion Energy Sciences Program. And then PFRC2 was built starting around 2010. It's still operating today, but the Department of Energy funding ended about 2016. Fortunately, around that time, we won our NIAC grant, our NASA NIAC grant, uh, which was a phase one and then went to a phase two. We just concluded it this month. And there's the design of the Pluto Explorer. And again, those engines are no more than two meters in diameter to give you a sense of scale for that picture. We now have a phase two STTR, um, which is in collaboration with Princeton Plasma Physics Lab, where we're ordering the superconducting magnet uh, depicted in the center bottom row. And that will go through 2020, and we're going to be testing that uh, with a pulsed coil on the inside to simulate plasma startup and uh, fault and see how the superconducting magnet does. And just this month, we started an ARPA-E open grant where every three years uh, they have an RFP that's open to all energy technologies. And this year, for the first time, Fusion was in the call. And uh, they awarded three Fusion projects as part of OPEN. So we're excited to be part of that. And we'll be working more on the PFRC2 and generating ion heating, which I will also talk about more in a little bit. So NASA has been really critical in us getting to this point. And uh, now we have this RPE open, and we'll see what we can do with that in the next 12 to 18 months. All right, slide number seven. So just going back to NASA's interest in small fusion, and you guys all may have some feedback for me on this. This is our interpretation of, you know, where how our fusion reactor could fit in. Um, but, for example, uh, you know, a deep space gateway in space, those bases on the moon and Mars, orbital platforms, uh, near interstellar telescopes and the solar gravitational lens potential telescope, which is a great example of getting there a lot faster with your fusion reactor and having a lot of power for communications when you get there. Uh, or the asteroid intercept, and in general, high-power communications. All right, slide eight gives an overview of uh, deep space rapid transit using our engine properties. So this is a one to two megawatt fusion engine and a 10,000 kilogram total mission mass, so including your fuel, so delivering um, about 1,000 kilograms of payload as a part of that. And this shows us reaching Jupiter in about a year. Uh, Saturn in two years, and getting to Pluto within five years, uh, all with a two megawatt or less engine. Uh, so that really encapsulates um, using fusion propulsion to get there faster. Uh, Stephanie? Yes. Hi. Gordon, Gordon Ressler, Robots in Space. Um, what uh, specific impulse was assumed for this? Because that will tell us something about the, the fuel fraction versus the payload fraction. Right. The specific <laughs> impulse. Uh, is about 10,000 to 20,000 seconds. Okay, thank you. Uh, depending on whether you use deuterium or hydrogen, for example, um, as your scrape-off layer flow, that there's a factor of two right there. But there's also some variability within each engine, and I do have a chart uh, further on that sort of shows the range more specifically. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, at the top level, say, say about 10,000 seconds. Uh, and, of course, for these missions right here, there's a, a variability in the optimum ISP. So, um, you know, slower for Jupiter, faster for Pluto. So uh, if you do it with the optimal, then you need even, you know, a lower power engine. If you want to build one engine, uh, then you have to pick a number in the middle. All right. So then slide nine puts it in uh, a little bit of context for you right there, uh, where we sort of have our range of, of one to 100 megawatts, where 100 megawatts would be 10 DFDs used together. And these dots here, Mars mission, Jupiter mission, Pluto mission, 125AU mission, the, uh, let's call them maroon dots, uh, those are the missions we analyzed for the Space Propulsion Institute proposal that we put together based on, on DFP. So that sort of ball there shows our target ISP range, um, which also corresponds to the previous chart. Uh, 
So right around sort of 100, 120 kilometers per second, and then potentially higher, depending on which fuel you use. Do you want to talk about this here? So, and then the graph on the right shows sort of a theoretical maximum delta V that can be achieved based on an assumed ISP uh, taking into account a rather aggressive structural fraction and just showing that, you know, with the DFD now we have delta Vs that are more in the range of 300 kilometers per second or certainly 150 to 200 kilometers per second based on that 10,000 seconds of ISP, uh, which, again, I can – I have some further charts. All right, slide 10. So if everybody looks at slide 10, I have two stills from two videos that you can watch at a later time. I uh, did not want to take the time or the uh, megabytes to have them in here today. Um, but we have a video that shows the team and shows the machine in operation. And there's a picture of Sam um, with the machine on. And then we have more of a technical animation that shows uh, – the plasma and the plasma rotating and the scrape-off layer flow going around it that explains a little bit more um, how the engine works. So I encourage you to look at those um, at a later time. Okay, so slide on this slide, I'm sorry, the number is missing, um, but DSD power and propulsion in one compact device is slide 11. And uh, here we have uh, just the engine without any arrows showing any flows yet. There you see the one to two meters uh, on the far right-hand side, giving the scale. And again, so we're using uh, radio frequency heating to create closed field lines or an enclosed plasma toroid in the center there inside our magnetic mirror, producing power and thrust. All right, now if we flip to the next slide, uh, which would be slide 12, power and propulsion in one device. Now we have some additional arrows on that's showing the flow, the scrape-off layer flow. Uh, going into our plume, where the fusing plasma is acting as our heating source. So we have cool propellant or coolant uh, coming in there on the left and flowing outside the plasma confinement region, where it absorbs energy from those fusion products, uh, and then the electrons get hot, and then it's in the magnetic nozzle that the energy gets exchanged between the electrons and the ions, and the ions accelerate out the back of the engine. And there uh, you have the range of thrust and impulse. So we're looking at 5 to 10 newtons per megawatt of fusion power, and that specific impulse between 10,000 and 20,000 seconds. A question? Uh, yes. Uh, this is Greg Mahalik at Aerospace. What keeps the fusion plasma stationary with the pressure difference between the propellant end and the exhaust plume? What keeps it centered? The mirror magnets okay. are creating a very strong magnetic field that traps it. Understood. They're, Thank you. They're like 20 Tesla-ish magnets. All right. So that's a great question. So but, magnets kind of trap the FRC within the mirror machine. So, yeah. Was but, there another question? Yeah, well, I was just going to say the, the propellant gets ionized also, so it's going to get trapped too. I'm not sure what, what allows you to hold on to the, the, uh, the, the, the fusion stuff and uh, not hold on to the, the propellant that can go through. Oh, well, there are open field lines around the FRC. This is not a field that, you know, it doesn't lay the field. This particular diagram doesn't show the field lines. Um, closed field line fusion region and then open streamlines going around it, and that's what oh, enables the flow to go around it. Yes. Okay, that's interesting. Thank you. So the scale is actually approximately correct in just in this little schematic where you have, you know, maybe five centimeters of scrape-off layer flow going on those open lines and then, say, your 25-centimeter radius of a sort of fusing plasma. Um, I think I have a great field line diagram a little later. All right. So the slide after this one, oh, it has its number, yay. So slide 13. So this is the power production, right? So that was the propulsion slide. This is the power production slide laid on the same schematic. Uh, so now we can see our radiation losses, which are lost from the plasma that hit the walls, are how we're going to generate electricity. So the fusion deposits heat in the walls in the form of X-rays and microwaves, and then we anticipate a Brayton engine, uh, which would convert the heat to electricity, and then the excess heat in our case, of course, is rejected to space. So these are example percentages. There's a lot of trade-offs uh, within the Brayton engine in terms of having a recuperator, not having a recuperator, and radiator mass versus engine mass. But for example, uh, in a 60-40 split, and then in terms of the fusion power, uh, if we have our DFD, so we have our open end, we might anticipate between 40 and 50 percent of the fusion energy going into the plume, and then 55, 50, 55 percent of that energy going into electricity. So it's approximately a 50-50 split, 
and we do have some uh, play within a, a given engine design on those numbers. But just to give you an idea, so maybe half the energy goes right into the walls and makes the electricity, and then about half the energy goes into making thrust in a nominal configuration. All right. So we're almost at my big pause point. So slide 14, uh, NIAC, the NIAC program requires you to put your technology into a single mission context where you really demonstrate to NASA how your mission, uh, what you're enabling, what new mission you're enabling. So when we were writing the proposal, New Horizons had recently flown past uh, Pluto and, you know, in 14 kilometers per second flyby, and we said, well, going into orbit around Pluto would be very significant. And now we have all this power, so we could uh, beam power down to a lander that would then have lots and lots of power to do drilling and all kinds of exciting things. So that's the mission we pitched to them. Uh, so this depicts uh, the trajectory going into Pluto. It's approximately a straight-line trajectory with a flip uh, about 60% of the way there. And then conceptually, our little spacecraft in orbit around Pluto, uh, beaming power down to its lander. So you know, we could have a 1,000-kilogram uh, spacecraft in orbit around Pluto and get there in less than five years. That was our, our nominal mission. And then we have a, an example mass breakdown here where we have a single engine. And uh, so that's, say, about 1,100 kilograms. We have our radiators. We have our fuel. And an important number there, the helium-3, um, which I haven't talked about a lot, but I'll get to a little more later, which is our, our fuel, is only about half a kilogram. Helium-3 is rare, although it's, you know, manufactured um, in different ways and is used in, in medical devices and a lot of other devices. But you can buy this amount of helium-3 off the shelf today. So uh, it, you can easily accomplish mission, missions such as this. And then we have the radius of the tank just showing that it's uh, reasonable and would fit within the launch vehicle and then and just a very uh, basic breakdown. So we might have 500 kilograms um, for our orbiter payloads. Slide 15 uh, just breaks down the spacecraft a little bit um, where we have our radiator size. Those little solar panels uh, would be for Earth orbit checkout purposes. We have our DFD engines. You could have one or two. And then the fuel tanks and then the little uh, lander at the end. And then uh, those optical communication layers, lasers are depicted on those nice trusses. So that's slide 15. Okay, so slide 16, which is also missing its number, but has a giant stop sign. So You've seen the picture of the engine. You've heard me talk about it. And uh, so how is the fusion drive achievable now when it wasn't in the past? So now I'll talk a little bit more specifically about the underlying fusion technology. So the next slide, slide 17, also missing its number, sadly. Uh, DSD is different from other fusion reactor concepts, and, and these are the main reasons why our unique heating method, the simple configuration, the very small size, the ultra-clean operation, and the low radiation. And then a few physics points. FRCs in general have 10 times better confinement than a tokamak. FRC has a 20 times higher beta, which is an important a parameter for different types of fusion reactors. And it can contain five times higher density. And all of these features are what make it uniquely suited for use in space. So now the next slide, slide 18, breaks down the heating method a little bit. So it's, it's RF frequencies or radio frequencies, and then the RMS is for rotating magnetic fields. So we're using the currents in our antennas to drive a rotating magnetic field, and that's what accelerates the plasma and creates a current. And it's the current of the plasma where the fusion happens. So now you see some field lines. Uh, you know, you were asking, I don't understand, you know, about the field lines. So now you can see those closed field lines um, with the maximum current with the red field line where the little three um, magnetic arrow points are. And then you can see the magenta and the blue open field lines coming around the outside. And then you see a depiction of the antenna. Now, this uh, little picture on the right is normally a little animation, and it shows the green arrows changing direction as the currents oscillate in the antennas. So all around the engine, those four antenna sets around the engine have these fields going in opposite directions, and they create this closed field line topology. So we have a very efficient current drive at this magnetic null at those red field lines. And, um, and here's a little explanation for odd parity, and this is where the green arrows come in. In odd parity, the fields are in opposite directions on either side of the machine midplane. This is what gives us closed field lines. Starting back in the 50s and 60s, when this type of heating was attempted, they had what we were calling even parity, where there was just a single antenna loop. 
it wasn't the two loops. And that creates open field lines and eventually worse confinement. So it's the antenna configuration that's really the crucial point that makes our heating uh, much more efficient and our confinement better. So there's the physics for you. On slide so, 19, oh, yes. Is this essentially, and pardon my ignorance for this, but is it basically two right-hand rule MPD processes that are countering each other and then this to where they're countering each other is where the heat is generated and the plasma is forming because of the interaction? I don't know about that, but it creates a rotating ele magnetic and electric fields that really push the plasma along, pull the plasma along as it goes. So they end up accelerating and then stopping, accelerating and then stopping and sort of chasing the rotating field. So really it's the rotating electric field that's created by the rotating magnetic field that pushes the plasma currents. Interesting. Um, if okay. you watch the YouTube video, yeah, it, it, the animator did a good job and, and sort of makes it a little more understandable. Um, slide 19, uh, again, shows the field lines. Again, so you can see the closed field region, and then, and then we've highlighted the open field lines. So just emphasizing that we just have this simple array of magnets, um, easy to build, easy to pull apart. Uh, so next slide, slide 20, small. I said there's three keywords, so here we are, third keyword, small. DFD is really, really small. So this is a picture of ITER being built in France, um, which you could say is typical of a tokamak. So it might be four gigawatts. Uh, ITER will uh, be half a gigawatt. It's still a research reactor, so it's still at least two steps from a commercial tokamak, which might be four gigawatts. It's 60 meters tall, and, you know, development's taken about 40 years for one machine cycle. There's our PFRC reactor shown, itty bitty, uh, and there's the people. You know, so there's a person in the ITER diagram. There's people in our diagram. Uh, so you know, we bought one to ten megawatts, two meters diameter. So you know, we're looking at a machine cycle, a machine development cycle of only five to ten years. Um, so it's small enough to fit on a single launch vehicle. So that just gives you the visual perception of how small it is. Um, that you asked for scale. There are the people, so that gives you an idea of the scale. They're very small. Um, so next slide, slide 21. Uh, for those of you that might be fusion aficionados, it gives our fusion fuel um, and our reactions. And this is important for getting the shielding down because the critical thing in space, you know, if we have 15, 20 centimeters of ceramic shielding, you know, we're done. It's uh, 2,000 kilograms in shielding. So the fuels that we choose drive the small shielding, which makes it useful in space. So we have our deuterium helium-3 reaction. Uh, which does not produce any neutrons, so our main re uh, reaction is aneutronic. We estimate at least 98% of our power would be in that reaction. But if we have hot deuterium, we're going to have side reactions, which are shown next, and one produces a tritium, and the other one produces a moderate energy neutron. If that deuterium then fuses, uh, sorry, if that tritium then fuses with deuterium, then we get the high energy neutron. Now you can see that that's crossed out. Uh, that 14 MeV neutron we do not want. We want to get the tritium out because the 14 MeV neutrons are what destroy the walls and what make your shielding have to be thick. So we do anticipate a small, you see less than 1% there in each of our side reactions. We partly achieve that with our fuel ratio by front-loading about 2 to 1 or 3 to 1 helium-3 to deuterium, um, and also by uh, keeping the machine small. So uh, we estimate, you know, almost zero. Uh, 14 MeV neutrons, so that tritium being cooled and exhausted before it can fuse. So as I said, that's for your fusion aficionados, and if you were to compare us to a deuterium-tritium machine, which has almost all of its energy in neutrons, um, we do not. All right, slide 22 has a, a picture of sort of how the tritium gets out. Uh, so the big picture on the left is a simplified version where only a few orbits of the fusion product are shown. And then on the right uh, is more of a simulation where you can see all the hundreds of orbits that, you know, it takes. But on the left, it's simplified just so you can see. Uh, it starts in sort of this open, loopy betatron orbit. Uh, and then it's intersecting, you can see, between the red line and the green line is that little space. And that's where that cool plasma is that's going around the outside of the engine. Every time it crosses into that cool plasma, it loses energy. And that's how you go from the loopy orbit to the figure eight orbit, which is lower energy, and now it's crossing even faster. And then it eventually gets trapped by that field line and shoots out the back of the engine. And that's how we get the tritium out. 
this process, you know, these hundreds of orbits, actually takes less than 20 milliseconds, and we have great simulations of this now. We have a recent uh, paper published uh, last year with the results of um, pick simulations of this process. So this is really important because a burn-up time of tritium would be, say, 20 seconds, but if we're getting it out in 20 milliseconds, we can really say we're going to expect almost zero uh, tritium fusion. So again, this is a critical aspect of, of why we designed the reactor the way we've designed it, why it's the radius it is, because you can see these betatron orbits have a particular size. It's this many centimeters for a tritium atom with that amount of energy. If our reactor were much larger, it would not intersect with our cool scrape-off layer, and it would stay in the reactor and fuse, and we'd have more radiation. So this is why we're radius-limited to that 25 centimeters or so. So, again, that's why I say we can't scale it up by making it bigger. It would be more radioactive. So there's this sweet spot right around that 25-centimeter mark depicted in this picture. All right. So slide 23. And just emphasizing how clean it is. So now here we have our grad students depicted in this artist's conception. And again, this gives you a great idea of the scale. We have these people, we have the engine. And you only need maybe uh, a meter of shielding for somebody to spend their workday next to the reactor, day after day after day. Um, and then you can see there is some shielding, this white shielding uh, in between the plasma and the magnets. We do have superconducting magnets. And even those low, relatively low energy neutrons even though we have less than 1% of our energy in them, in order to have a long lifetime engine for terrestrial purposes, if you want it to last, you know, 30 years without having to take it apart, um, you would have, um, you know, 10, 20 centimeters of shielding in there. So you can see that depicted. Uh, for a shorter life engine, you might be able to get away with less. Uh, right. So slide 24, again, just emphasizing my, my happy buzzwords of the day, which is that DFD is simple with our linear array of magnets, easily directed plume. It's small. Plasma radius cannot be more than 25 centimeters, so the whole engine is one to two meters in diameter, and it's really, really clean. By using helium-3, by having this design that will enable us to get rid of the tritium, we're going to have less than 1% of our power in neutrons, which enables a small amount of shielding. All right, so at this point, if there are any more questions on the physics, I should take them now. Would anyone like to jump in? Um, Steve Brody, ISU, um, the, the physics here is probably beyond when it was even for me eons ago. But uh, uh, you, in your earlier chart where you showed just uh, time to Jupiter and, and other outer planets, you didn't mention Mars. Um, I, I'm sure I could do the calculation eventually, but can you say a word or two about getting to Mars? So, yeah, Mars, um, the oh, NASA example mission uh, for the, the Institute. Amount, you were about continuous acceleration, then continuous deceleration. Was that the idea? Yes, right. It's sort of straight line trajectory. So for the outer planets, it's really simple to uh, make a projection. Uh, with Mars, with our specific impulse thrust envelope, um, we could do sort of 120-day fast mission, but to do a, what was a 90-day mission was a little tough um, in the Institute example. So, you know, if we're able to uh, get rid of all our shielding and have a sprint engine so our specific power is even better, you know, we could do better. Um, so certainly you can use it to go to Mars. You can use it to power a Mars base, um, but it is not a very high-thrust solution. So in terms of the ultra-fast trajectories to Mars, may not be the best choice. So that's why Mars wasn't on the picture. Um, okay, thanks. Yeah. Um, slide 25, uh, just, again, emphasizing, you know, your tokamak on the left, the little PFRC on the right, and all the reasons that those things I've been talking about, the size, the radioactivity, it's really expensive to deal with radioactivity. Um, People don't like dealing with tritium, very expensive. And then you have the irradiated materials. The breeding of tritium has to be done within the reactor because tritium doesn't exist in nature, the complexity. And, and PFRC just down on the scales of all of that, which is why we project, you know, being able to uh, build a fusion demonstrator on the order of 100 million as opposed to the many, many billions of dollars for um, a tokamak. All right, so actually slide 26 does have uh, another summary of the key physics points. We have a lot of technical papers on these subjects, uh, if you're so inclined, on our website. Um, we have a variety of software codes that are used to do the modeling, and then we do have our experiments, um, which is heating hydrogen. 
And we have this Hamiltonian code showing current drive and rapid ion electron heating. Um, PFRC1 demonstrated rapid electron heating um, with a stability uh, many times greater than predicted by MHD and indirectly demonstrated uh, closed FRC formation. Uh, PFRC2 thus far has demonstrated 100 times improved particle confinement and stability uh, better than MHD. And a PIC model is a fully 3D um, plasma simulation. It also demonstrated current drive field reversal, which produces the closed field lines using our heating method and, and great agreement with our X-ray measurements that are being taken on the machine. Uh, and I don't know. Stephanie? Yes. All right. Steph so the the disagreement with MHD, has that subsequently been resolved and understood? Well, the reason we're better than MHD is because we're not really in the MHD regime, which is more fluid-like, and we're collisionless. Um, so it's it's actually not a good model, which is why we're so much better than if you used an MHD model. So we don't want them to agree, actually. It's not an issue of um, – that we need to match MHD. It's actually where we are much, much better than MHD because of the regime of our machine. So that would be too simplistic okay. to use an MHD model. Uh, I, I see. Uh, so you have models that work fine? The, yes, the PIC work fine, yes. <laughs> um, yes, we'd like to do PIC models of a larger machine, and they're actually working to transfer those codes to GPUs because um, with a larger volume, um, of a reactor scale machine, it's going to take uh, a lot more supercomputing time. So these PIC um, results are for the smaller machines. But yes, so we have PIC models, we have single particle models um, that do relate to the measurements. I was just going to say, I, so PFRC2, oh yes, go ahead. Yeah, uh, so PIC, I'm sorry, I may have missed what PIC is. Particle and cell. Okay. It's, a, it's a way of doing 3D simulations of all the particles of the plasma with the very, very small time steps that are required. So that's the Thanks. golden standard, shall we say, for plasma simulations. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah. So PFRC2 has heated electrons to date also, and I just want to mention that with our ARPA-E open uh, contract that we're working on now, the goal is to have heated ions to one kilo electron volt, which is about 1% of the temperature needed for fusion, um, within about a year. So that's the current goal. Slide 27 just shows some pictures of our tools, shows um, the output of a particle and cell code, uh, showing the plume expanding, showing the orbit of a particle that's been heated by RMS using a Hamiltonian code. And then we have a multi-species fluid model that we use for the scrape-off layer because that is a, a more dense regime. And that's the code that we've used to get our thrust and ISP numbers. So we're applying multitudes of codes. Um, and then slide 28 is just a little overview of the experimental apparatus, um, showing it as an example X-ray, uh, showing our nice hot electrons um, at 500 electron volts, showing examples of our long stability pulses and the graph on the bottom when we puff gas in because of the FRC and it gets trapped there and stays there for a long time. And then we're doing major upgrades now under our RPE open grant that will enable us to heat ions, which also involves lowering the frequency of our, of our heating method. So, yeah, with the boards tuned, they can either heat electrons or ions, but not both at one frequency. So once we lower the frequency, then the goal will be to heat ions. Slide 29 shows a picture of the experiment. Now you can see there's a ruler on there. So you can see, you know, that's a foot. So um, it's less than 12 inches in diameter. And um, this would have been a video as well. We, you have, we have some pretty videos of the pulses. And uh, the other video that I um, gave links to does show that machine in operation. All right. So now the next few slides are just to give you an overview of what we've done specifically with our NASA grants. So slide 30 just gives that overview. Slide 31 um, just shows that the next questions to answer um, from our NIAC grant were, you know, do we really think PFRC will be able to produce net power from fusion? Can DFD be made to operate for long durations in space? And can it achieve the specific power for the desired mission parameters? So our NASA work predominantly worked on questions two and three, and the continuing work at the lab and our new ARPA-E open grant are continuing to address number one. Slide 32 now shows the subsystems of 
the PFRC or the DFC. So our actual engine is in the center, marked plasma. We have our RF generators, our shielding, our radiation losses, um, and then that's going into the heat engine where we generate electricity. We have to uh, cool the coils and also radiate their excess heat to space. And we also need startup. So we don't want to carry a fission reactor along with us for startup, um, as some other fusion concepts might require. Um, but our engine is so small, with only one to two megawatts, that it actually is just a few kilograms of oxygen to start it up um, with an APU-type unit. So that's the idea is that you would you would have some oxygen, you would use some of the deuterium you already have. If you want to recover your oxygen, you carry along an electrolysis unit, um, and then you can start up an engine in the case of a failure. So these are the subsystems that we analyzed under NIAC. And then slide 33 gives some typical reactor parameters uh, to go along with this. Um, I mentioned the fuel. I mentioned that we are have a high fuel ratio with more helium-3. That's important to keeping our radiation down. Uh, for the field strengths, again, if you're a fusion aficionado and you look at other machines, we're looking at five to seven Tesla along the center of the machine, which is not very different from an MRI machine, nor is the size very different from an MRI machine. So if you've had an MRI, you can picture that. The nozzle magnets are stronger. Um, the strength of that rotating magnetic field that our antenna have to create is probably less than 1% of that axial field strength, and that's all that's needed to excel, drive this plasma current. And then we have the temperatures and other things. So those are kind of for your reference. Slide 34 now shows a power flow. When I gave my talk at JPO, I had left this slide out, and I was asked specifically about the power flow, so I put this in for you so you can see the breakdown uh, coming out of our models. So Bremsstrahlung and synchrotron are the two types of radiation losses where we have this hot plasma and it's, it's having losses. Um, we can recover that heat, um, put that into our uh, heat engine and get some of the electricity back. You see uh, the 0.11 megawatts going into the RMF heating, so that's the drive driven part of our reactor where we're recycling some of that power to keep the fusion reaction running. Um, you see about half the power uh, coming out as thrust into the plume. And then you see the, some specific powers down there. So for a small engine, a one megawatt engine, we're looking for a specific power, maybe 0 0.7, 0 0.8 kilowatts per kilogram. For a larger engine, it would actually be better because now the mirror magnets are servicing a larger power. They're pretty hefty. Um, and the engines, uh, so you get a bit of economy of scale actually for a larger engine. And then we have the breakdown of the heat going to the radiators. So that's, again, the bullets just emphasize that 10% of the power getting recycled um, and the specific power range. All right. That's also a good note to Mars mission. So one more time. I was going to say that does look feasible for like a, an accelerated Mars mission. Depending on yeah exactly how accelerated yes, <laughs> um, yes absolutely all right. Slide thirty five just has um, some more pictures shows kind of the breakdown of the mass. So the shielding is still um, potentially a pretty big chunk of the mass. It might still be a quarter of your mass. Um, we're looking at maybe ways to uh, reduce that even more. Um, but that's enabled, it being only 25% of the masses is enabled by our, our super low radioactivity. And then the magnets come in as a big number two, um, and then the radiators are kind of the next big chunk, and, and everything else is actually uh, much smaller. All right, slide 36, I was asked about the specific impulse. So this is a model or an envelope showing the thrust and uh, velocity for specific impulse. And this is using that U-Edge uh, fluid code. So we're modeling power getting dumped into that scrape-up layer and then it following those field lines and, uh, and getting accelerated out the nozzle. So this gives you sort of the flow rate and then um, the thrust. So this is where we got that 5 to 10 uh, newtons per megawatt and uh, our exhaust velocity range. As you can see, uh, as the power um, goes up, uh, the exhaust velocity actually improves to some extent. So this gives us... Um, a trade and helps us uh, zero in on those mission analyses. And this was really exciting. We did not have uh, these numbers until we got our NIAC contract. Before, we'd done some research papers just using general electropropulsion equations and just taking guesses at efficiencies. Um, but these uh, really let us zoom in on, on a feasible, more feasible range of parameters. So our NIAC really enabled this. All right, slide 37, I promised you more field lines. 
uh, one of the big things we did for our magnet STTR was work on magnet design tools through a grad Shafranoff. Uh, tool or equilibrium is an equation in MHD uh, for a two-dimensional plasma. And uh, so we can run these codes to find out what the currents are going to be in the magnets. Uh, there's going to be a much larger current in the central magnets, and then as the magnets get further away from the center and away from the center of the plasma current, they can actually be much smaller. So these give us numbers for those currents. And then you have the big fat mirror magnet on the end, and you can see how much it's pinching in the field lines there. So now you can really see all the open field lines coming around the outside and then through the mirror. Um, I don't think I need to say anything more about this slide right now. All right, slide 38 just shows, again, the superconducting magnet that we've ordered. It's coming in a couple months, maybe next month, uh, for our STTR. And we're going – it has two um, magnet windings that are separated by a gap so that it really mimics those discrete magnets we're going to have in a PFRC. We're going to use a pulsed in or copper coil to simulate FRC plasma formation and test the impact on the magnets of uh, faults and plasma formations and really learning how to turn on the machine without quenching the magnet, which is going to be pretty important. Um, so that was under topic uh, T201, uh, Advanced Nuclear Propulsion. Um, slide 39 is just, uh, again, showing the terrestrial version of the engine with the closed uh, end box there. And so as also as part of our NIAC, we've been looking at whether you can fly your engine to Pluto and then turn it into closed-loop mode and what that would take and what equipment would be required and how big does that box have to be on the end. And it's looking very feasible that with just another one meter worth of box that we can have some panels that close, um, some tungsten-lined uh, panels that can close and some pumps that we fly with for a pretty modest impact on specific power that one engine may, in fact, be able to do both. So you turn it on, you fly to Pluto, or Jupiter, or Saturn, uh, wherever you choose to go. And then you close the flaps, and you start pumping, um, and then you can generate more power uh, without wasting uh, the rest of your coolant. So now you take the rest of your coolant, and you run it in closed loop. So that's exciting. And uh, lots of details will be in our NIAC Phase 2 report, which will be a public report once it's gone through its review. So I expect that to be um, available from our website in a couple months. All right, so slide 40, just going to conclude here, um, I guess it's pretty late, uh, with our roadmap to flight. So slide 41 shows our path um, where we've heated electrons, we need to heat ions, that's what we're working on now, and then we need higher field operation and to demonstrate fusion. So from our current machine, the PFRC2, we anticipate two machines to that point, a PFRC3 to demonstrate fusion-relevant heating, which is what we call about that 5-kilo-electron volt point, and then a further machine that would demonstrate fusion. Again, we want to avoid neutrons as much as possible because it's cheaper um, and easier to do our experiments. And there's some uh, notional time frames there. The next slide, slide 42, just really lays out all the subsystems that are also required besides the fusion core to operate it in space. We have high-temperature ceramics for the heat engine. Uh, NASA has been working on carbon-carbon radiators. Uh, the cryogenic fuel tanks, the really lightweight fuel tanks are, are coming up. And uh, high-temperature superconductors have been making tremendous progress in the latest few years. So uh, it seems to all be coming together, and we haven't found any supporting technology that would cause this not to be available, say, in the next 15 years. And then slide 43, uh, again, lays out the roadmap maybe to flight. So uh, PFRC3 would be a fully superconducting machine, um, one to two Tesla magnets. Uh, we anticipate a separate power conversion test bed to work on the Brayton cycle development using a non-fusion heat source. And then those can come together with a PFRC4 that would demonstrate fusion for the first time. And then from that point, you could build a flight prototype with all of your supporting technologies, your shieldings and, and a startup system and something that could produce thrust. And then in flight, you Stephanie? have the additional. Yes. All right. What is the risk of not doing PFRC3 and going to 4? We get asked this question all the time. Um, I sort of skipped over it, but back on slide 41, um, there was a picture on the lower left, and it shows a line with PFRC 1, 2, 3, and 4 dropped on that line where it's an axis of magnetic field to radius. Um, and it comes down really to how much money we can get for the machine and how big we can make the magnets. 
um, because the magnets are the most expensive component. So PFRC3, we could do a 2B, we could do a 3, we could do a 3AB where we build it a little bigger, and then at the end we throw some more shielding on and make it diffusion. Um, Sam, uh, my compatriot Sam at the PPPL would say there's so much science we need to do once we're at those really hot plasma temperatures plus uh, one keV, one kilovolt, um, that he would really like the opportunity to do a lot more science. Um, but but we could probably build a three AB that could be a hybrid and do both. It depends how much money. You know, if I only get five million, I can only build a PFRC three. If we get twenty million or thirty million, you know, from the get go and can design something bigger then we're much closer to a four. So I hope that answers your question. <laughs> it does. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I have a question. Um, if you went to iridium right away, um, could you use a smaller machine um, to to demonstrate break-even? I mean, obviously, it's it might be just as expensive as a larger machine without because of the neutron problem, but um, could you – yeah. So, could you use a smaller machine if you if you just use tritium instead of helium three? Well, then we're still going to have all of our power in neutrons, which we don't want. Uh, so, there's reasons we don't want to do that. Uh, we could demonstrate fusion with deuterium deuterium, uh, which will have certainly much le much less radiation than deuterium tritium. It would still produce some uh, tritium side reactions, but that's a possibility for sort of a PFRC four demonstrator. Um, but we would really prefer to get hot enough to demonstrate helium-3 because that's our goal, and that's certainly our goal for use in space, as I mentioned before, because of the lightweight shielding. That's true. However, if you if you demonstrated to everybody that you you had break-even, break um, some some level of break-even fusion, I, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't have any problems getting the funding yeah. the next level. Yeah, well, Right, so right now we have to hit the 1 keV mark with our existing machine. If we can do that, that's really a proof of concept that the heating method works for making ions hot. That's a very high temperature um, for FRCs. And then the 5 keV mark that I have up here for PFRC3, that's considered fusion relevant because at that temperature you could make DT fusion happen. Um, but we really want to get up to that 50 to 100 keV, which is the happy place for, for helium-3. So. We do have a lot of options, and yes, you know, once we've demonstrated fusion, that certainly will help. <laughs> I just had two more slides to conclude. Uh, just 44 showed a slide, an example of a Titan auto gyro where it's similar to the Pluto uh, Explorer, where we take it there and then we beam power down to it. Um, so a fun mission enabled by DFD. And slide 45 just shows that solar gravitational lens, um, where maybe we could get there in less than 15 years. So it's really shortening the time that the scientist who's worked on the experiment, you know, can get their data back um, maybe before they retire, which I know they'd really appreciate. And then slide 46 is just the thank you slide. So um, it has our website and uh, Sam's email address, my email address, and uh, we would love to hear from people. So thanks for listening. Great. Excellent, Stephanie. Thank you so much. There have been a lot of questions, and we have some time left. Are there other questions for Stephanie? I had uh, Stephanie, a great presentation, by the way. This is uh, Philip Blue in UCSB. Um, hey. Hi, how are you? Um, yeah, no, really terrific. I, I love this work. Um, in the previous work that the uh, DOE had supported, what, what was the critical missing point that um, is changing now? I know that you have better magnets and you have a uh, you know, reverse field configuration, but what, what would you say was, was different? At this point. The DOE supporting us or fusion in general? <laughs> well, PPL's work on that, Sam Cohen's work on, on you know, small fusion reactors of the kind that you're, you're talking about. Not, not the general work on, you know, tokamak type. But. Well, the goal for PFRC2 has actually never changed. It was always size to be able to heat ions, but Sam never got the money really to finish building it. Essentially, it was never finished. We have this 200 kilowatt amp that can drive the RF sitting in the lab, but we never had the money to pay the RF engineers to finish building the cables that can handle that level of power. So it was kind of piecemeal. We had these very big magnets, but then we needed upgrades to the power supply to run them at the higher field strength, which we didn't have the engineer time to spend on. So, you know, Sam said he got these great results. You know, he wrote this wonderful proposal, and then they gave him a third of the money. So, um, 
the science and the goal of the machine, the, the simulation results supporting the heating method have not changed essentially since that 2002 mark um, when he first got the idea and built PFRC1. We've just never never been supported at a high enough level. So it's just really a one-man show. You know, there's Sam and there's his students, and that's been it. So um, the publication rate has been up and down depending on how great the students are. <laughs> you know, there's data that hasn't been published. Um, and there was just engineering work that couldn't be finished. So, um, and then, and then the program that, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I was going to say that our funding terminated because they broadened the program that was funding this machine to cover other types of plasma physics, and then, you know, our renewal was not granted. So, um, Ryan, quick, quick follow-on question. You know, we, we've seen these uh, ads by Lockheed, you know, Fusion in, a, in your semi-truck or whatever it was. Um, yes. And, and that, of course, kind of went away. I don't know what they're doing, but it, was that using a similar concept or, or something? No. No, yeah, they resurrected something based on magnetic cusps, and uh, we might point out that they seem to have left out their shielding uh, when they said it was going to fit on a truck because they were going to use deuterium tritium. Uh, and uh, we did not see the one meter of shielding uh, in their designs. And also it grew. The last time I saw Tom give a presentation, it was 200 megawatts. Uh, which is not small. So okay. um, they're still working on it, but, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Thanks for a great presentation, Stephanie. Good. Thank you, Good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Phil. Good to hear from you again. Do folks have other questions? Got yeah, yeah Steph, Stephanie, I got one for you, which is a, sort of a follow-up one of my, of my earlier question about, about heating power. And, and as you said, um, the thing becomes self-sufficient. So, so you basically take 10% of the power generated and go back into heating. But that makes me wonder about startup. Um, <laughs> you, you, need, you must need tens of kilowatts to start this thing up. And, gosh, you've got superconducting magnets also, so you've got to cool this thing down. I, I'm just seeing, I'm just seeing that you, you need a big plug, um, right at the beginning to get this thing going. What, how, how does that work? I think, I think you said you mentioned an APU and something about molecular oxygen and electrolysis. How, how does that work? Yes. Yes. So it sounds like a lot of power, but when you uh, take a couple minutes of the amount of power that we think will be required, it's actually a small number of kilograms of oxygen to produce that amount of power. Wait, I'm, I'm sorry, what, what's, what's, what's the mechanism that you're using uh, to you, the – Combustion. <laughs> Combustion. Oh, oh <laughs> or, wow. Uh, okay. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Wow. So we take them of our deuterium, and it's it's small. Uh, you know what, but a few – I don't know. I'm holding something. I'm holding my hands apart, but you can't see me right now to show <laughs> – Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, we're having a little discussion. We're having a little discussion on our end about how big it is, but uh -huh. it would not be large, and it would only take a few kilograms of oxygen to generate that amount of power. Um, we're also looking at. I didn't get into the technologies behind the superconducting magnets, but if they're conduction cooled, as opposed to bath cooled, um, it's actually easier to cool them down. Now, yes, there's cryo coolers, and yes, we need to power them, and certainly we would love to continue that analysis further um, as we go along. Okay. But at this point, it looks like it would be small. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So I have a uh, Steve Rohde. A, qu a quick question. Getting back to the the Mars example, perhaps, but even others. Um, what what uh, fraction of a g acceleration and deceleration are you producing? And and um, just uh, to play devil's advocate, what what would have to happen? to get the, the time to Mars down to, say, a month? Well, yeah, your specific power needs to be much, much higher, which means you need to be making your magnets out of diamond or something so that they can be very, very light. Um, as I said, if you take a sprint engine, an engine that you're only going to use for a year and then, say, take it apart and service it um, and rebuild it with new superconductors or something, you could take throw out all the shielding. Um, but as you saw, that was maybe a quarter of the mass of a longer-lived engine. Uh, so that would get your specific power down, um, and then you need to get um, – was it your specific impulse up? Um, but, yeah, it's kind, of out, it's kind of out of the envelope of where we see it operating right now. Um, but you could also use it as a closed-loop power plant and power other thrusters as opposed to using it as direct fusion drive. So if you just take a PFRC as your source of a megawatt and link it with some other types of propulsion, um, then you'd have higher thrust. 
but certainly 120 days would be feasible with, with a large payload, with say a, a 40 ton payload. Um, 120 days would be sort of the achievable with our nominal parameters. And those yeah, nominal much lighter magnets, throw away all the shielding, um, and kind of just have your conversion system left. <laughs> yeah, and what would be the G levels that uh, the acceleration would produce? Oh, yeah, small. Oh, yes. <laughs> small. Um, it's only, you know, producing, you know, say, five newtons, and it weighs a ton, and then your spacecraft weighs a bunch more tons. So, um, small. Stephanie, I think a lot, lots of questions per se. I think um emphasizes what a terrific presentation, very timely presentation this was. So, thank you. Thank you all. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash spaceq. We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Queue. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.